Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 21. Today, we are going to introduce you to four new witnesses inside of the School Book Depository. I think you're going to like this one. It starts to put together all the pieces of the puzzle from episode 19 and episode 20. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 21. Let's rewind the tape. Let's go back to a little after the noon hour on November 22, 1963. The parade was getting near, and the shooter was undoubtedly getting nervous. It was almost 12.20 p.m., and there was probably less than 10 minutes now to get into position and get set up for a shot. Kennedy must be getting close. How close? He didn't know exactly, and that probably did nothing but add to the panic of the shooter. And this young man, Bonnie Ray Williams, one of the men assigned to installing a new plywood floor on the sixth floor that day, was quickly getting in the way of the shooter's plans. How close the shooter lurked in the immediate vicinity is not clear, but what a chilling thought young Williams must have had that night as he crawled into bed. He, too, may have been close to meeting his maker, or maybe, in the most bizarre twists of fate, had he stayed up on the sixth floor to watch the parade, with Harold Norman and James Jarman remaining on the fifth floor, well, maybe the assassination attempt would have been thwarted altogether. No one will ever know the answer to that question. Williams was a 20-year-old man, a man that was just beginning to find his way in the world, and he was about to witness one of the most horrific political assassinations in the history of mankind. And the remains of his chicken lunch, all contained in a small paper sack, along with an empty Dr. Pepper bottle, were now going to be evidence in the largest murder investigation in the history of the United States. The story that we heard in episode 20 about Bonnie Ray Williams and his co-workers was critical. Clearly, Harold Norman's testimony that he heard the shell casings drop was riveting. It virtually sealed the deal that a shot was taken from the sixth floor window of the depository. But it also brings up key questions. Why didn't they hear anyone just tear out of there? That old rickety two-by-six floor. Surely, as someone raced away from the shooter's nest on the sixth floor, the pounding on that floor and the fading sound of runaway steps would have been evident to the three men situated right underneath. And just as important is the assumption related to the stopwatched timed event that we heard about in episode 19, the time it took for Oswald to swiftly make his way downstairs after the shot. If he was upstairs, and that's an if, if he was upstairs, then unequivocally it was not possible for him to have hesitated after the shot and stayed put. Remember, He only had about 90 seconds before the timeline related to Baker's dash into the building would nullify any chance that the government had of saying definitively 
that Oswald was up there on the sixth floor when the shots were fired. These pieces were filling in the puzzle, but there was one more important discussion to be had. In this next discussion, there was no chicken for lunch and nothing to catch the press's attention, but it would prove to be more than significant and, in fact, downright crucial. Now, let's turn to the story of the four ladies in the fourth floor window. Those ladies were Victoria Adams, Sandra Stiles, Elsie Dorman, and Dorothy Garner. For lack of a better term, I am going to call them the Fab Four. They have more to unpack than any other foursome of witnesses in the near vicinity. Adams and Garner end up being the co-stars of this show. You'll get that in a minute. If you are looking for credibility in a defense witness, Victoria Adams might have the kind of impeccable credentials that you were trying to find. She was born in San Francisco. At 23 years old, she had gone to the Ursuline Order in St. Mary's, Ohio, which is a group that has its historical origins in the business of bringing up cloistered nuns. She then subsequently taught school in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Immaculate Heart of Mary School, finally making her way to Dallas and taking a teaching position at St. Monica School there. At the time of the assassination, she was working in the school book depository as a survey representative for one of the publishers, Scott Forsman. She was a young woman of some constitution. Shortly, you are going to hear a little bit about that constitution of this 23-year-old. Adams was standing in the third pair of windows on the fourth floor at the time of the parade. It was close enough for her to actually see what Jackie Kennedy was wearing and spot the roses sitting in the car. She was right there with her friends, Sandra Stiles, Elsie Dorman, and Dorothy Garner. And they were excited to be watching the motorcade as it came down Main Street and then finally came into view as it made its right-hand turn onto Houston Street and then, in a moment, made its way almost right in front of them at the corner of Houston and Elm. There were lots of cheers, and from the fourth floor, they could hear somebody in the crowd calling to the president. The president responded because he and Mrs. Kennedy turned and faced the depository building as a result. It produced a beautiful view of both of them, a beautiful straight-on view for those four ladies in the window of the fourth floor. For that one glorious moment, they saw Jackie in all her splendor and those red roses in the car. And Miss Adams could remember how she felt, looking at Jackie and thinking, yes, all these beautiful things about her, all those things that, as a 23-year-old, she thought would attract men's attention. Before you know it, the limousine had made the left turn onto Elm, and that tree, that same oak tree we talked about so many times earlier, well, it obstructed their view too from the fourth floor. And then, almost immediately, they heard a shot, and a pause, and then a second shot, and then finally a third shot. To Miss Adams, it sounded like a firecracker, like it did to so many others, or even a cannon at a football game. It seemed as if it had come from the right and below, rather than from the left and above. And after the third shot, stunned, Victoria Adams, in almost some instinctive way, uh, the way that God-fearing and God-loving people forget about the danger and head toward the truth, well, that is exactly what she did. 
She headed toward the back of the building. She was headed for the back stairs, and she wasn't going alone either. Sandra Stiles was right with her, and she followed her. They were both moving quickly, and they both went through the stockroom that was in the rear of the fourth floor and in the northwest corner of the building, close to where the stairwell was. She was running, and Sandra was running. After hearing those shots, they stood still for a moment, but just a moment. Miss Adams would later estimate that it was between 15 and 30 seconds before they turned to begin the dash to the rear of the building and then make their way down the stairs. Victoria Adams, the Catholic schoolgirl of a tender age of 23, had three-inch high heels on that day. So the dash was only as fast as you could motor in those kind of shoes. But she was a determined young lady. They would make some noise and be heard on the way down the stairs. That noise turned out to be an important piece of evidence. Quickly, they entered the stairwell and descended down the stairs, past the third floor, and then the second floor, and then finally arriving at the first floor. There was no one else on the stairs during that trek. She would testify in front of the Warren Commission on that indisputable fact. Those two ladies, well, they heard no one and they saw no one on the stairs in that now infamous journey. As they had approached the stairs on the fourth floor, Miss Adams took note of the elevators. They weren't moving. They were the freight elevators, and you could see right through them, right through those wooden slats that comprised the makeshift doors. You could see all the mechanicals above them, all of the lines that tugged them up and down, the way all elevators do their thing. The elevator was very still. It was not moving. But in her recollections, she couldn't tell exactly what floor it was on. When they got to the first floor, they encountered two more colleagues of theirs, Mr. Bill Shelley and Mr. Billy Lovelady. Remember, the stairwell was in the northwest corner of the building. If you start with the east elevator, which is the reference point here for this purpose, the one I described earlier, these two men were both a little bit south and a little bit east of the front of the east elevator. That put them close to the electrical panel for the building, which is the source of some controversy from conspiracy theorists. Controversy about what they were doing there. And I will get to that in a moment. When Miss Adams turned and looked at Mr. Shelley and Mr. Lovelady, she said, I believe the president was shot. Remarkably, they said nothing back to her. Whether it was sheer shock on their part or something more dubious, we may never know. Miss Adams quickly proceeded out to the Houston Street dock. That nomenclature is a little misleading in that the dock itself is not on Houston Street. It's on the north side of the building. And when you exit there, well, then if you take a right, it will lead to Houston Street. But if you take a left, it will head toward the railroad yard. She took a left toward the railroad yard, toward where she thought the shots had come from. She wasn't out the door five or ten feet when she encountered a police officer who immediately looked at her and said, get back to the building. Miss Adams looked at him and said, but I work here. And gruffly, the policeman answered back, that's tough, get back. Victoria Adams was not a girl to take no for an answer when truth was in the balance. She was determined and she said to the officer, well, was the president shot? And the policeman shot right back, I don't know, go back. Well, that was enough to decide that it was time to retreat. And Miss Adams said, all right, 
but she didn't go straight back into the building. She went southwest, back around the building, and got to the front of the school book depository. There, she ran into Joe Molina, another employee working in the building. He was standing in front of the building, and also there was Avery Davis, who Miss Adams worked closely with in her role at Forsman. Encountering the two, she asked Avery, what do you think happened? Avery, in a fog like so many other people, said, I don't know. As luck would have it, and it was probably Marion Baker's motorcycle that had been parked in front of the school book depository, and he left his radio on, and it was blaring loud and clear, and Victoria Adams heard just what came at that moment over the police radio. The voice of the dispatcher was clear and said that shots had just been fired and that they had apparently come from either the second floor or the fourth floor window of the school book depository. At that moment, this brash 23-year-old classically trained teacher had the reality of the moment and the horror of what had just happened begin to grip her. Having heard the shots had come from the fourth floor, right where she had been, well, she panicked but only for a moment. For whatever reason, she decided it was best to go back into the building. There was already an officer standing there in front on the steps of the depository, preventing folks from going back into the school book depository, and he stopped her. But her natural reaction, just like it was in the back of the building, was to look at the officer and say, I work here. And on this occasion, it worked. He led her back into the building. She immediately went to the passenger elevator near the front entrance and began pushing the buttons, but the elevator was out of service. The power had been cut off to the elevator, it appeared. In the renovation that had occurred earlier that year on the depository building, there was a new set of stairs that you could take from the first floor up to the second floor, and Miss Adams quickly pivoted, taking those stairs. As she made her way up to the Texas School Book Depository offices on the second floor. Once there, she began to listen to the conversation of the people that were congregating in the office. But it wasn't long until she decided that there wasn't much of anything interesting going on right there, and she left the office and walked around the hall and back toward the freight elevator again. Basically, back toward the northwest corner of the building. This whole sequence happened in an absolutely rapid succession from one moment to another, and later, Adams would recollect that it was no more than five minutes from the time of the first shots that all of this occurred. The time it had taken her to essentially descend the building from the fourth floor and completely circle the building and then re-enter the building and finally, again, head to the rear of the building, settling at the rear of the second floor. She would recollect later in her mind many times over how fast she had run once she made the decision to exit the fourth floor after hearing the shots, and how fast she had gotten back to the stairwell, and how fast she had made her way down, despite those three-inch heels. She was sure that it was no more than 15 to 30 seconds between the time the shots were fired and the time she made it back to the stairway, and no more than a minute in total, before she was down on the first floor, give or take a few seconds, although she admits it would take a stopwatch to get the exact time. We know, based on the stopwatches already used, that her estimates were, in fact, a very good estimate. 
what she didn't know at that moment was that her supervisor, Dorothy Garner, had gotten up and followed her and Sandra Stiles to the back of the fourth floor as they made their mad dash toward the stairwell. Miss Garner was to stop at the stairs and ultimately make a decision not to descend down them. In a stunning evidentiary matter, for whatever reason, she hung around right there near the stairwell in a position where she could hear those two young ladies making their way down the stairs, listening to all of those squeaky steps squealing all the way down. And Miss Garner, like Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles, never saw or heard anyone else on those stairs until both Roy Truly and Marion Baker made their way up seconds later. Both of them coming up on their way up to the top floor, just as you heard in episode 19. Just like Adams and Sandra Stiles, Dorothy Garner never heard or saw anyone else on those stairs. No Lee Harvey Oswald. So you see, the only way that Lee Harvey Oswald could have taken the stairs and gotten down to the lunchroom in a minute and 30 seconds and not have been spotted by either Victoria Adams, Sandra Stiles, or Dorothy Garner is if he would have been able to get out in front of Adams on the stairwell and gotten far enough ahead of them that those squeaky stairs would not have made enough noise for any of them to detect. It would have had to have been just seconds after the shots. Obviously, that's close to an impossibility. The shooter was two floors up from where they were, all the way to the south side of the building, just as they were. He would have had to have come down two more flights of stairs and gotten in front of them on that race to the bottom, and even if he had been fast enough to be probably just slightly in front of them, which, by the way, is unlikely, they would have heard him on the stairwell. Those squeaky stairs would have been a dead giveaway. What is more likely in the reality of the escape route and the time frame is that he came behind them, and if that would have happened, well, he would have been caught up in the speed trap, so to speak, because there was Mrs. Garner right there at the stairs hanging out, and she would have seen him or at least heard him. What this means should be clear to everyone. Lee Harvey Oswald was not likely on the sixth floor when those shots were fired. When you consider all of these timestamps together collectively, all of this evidence would likely preclude the possibility of that. Could Oswald have come down another way and still gotten there in precisely the same amount of time or less using an alternative route? The answer to that is that it was simply unlikely, if not impossible. To make things even more bizarre, you just heard that the electricity to the elevators was out. Isn't that a curious coincidence? It's hard to interpret this one, but presumably, if you were the shooter, you might decide that dismantling the ability to ride the elevators for a very short period of time as you were making your escape might be helpful. Honestly, that is the conspiracy theorist's opinion of this. And honestly, that really is a matter of opinion because the only way out of that building was to get down to the first floor and then exit from there. And there was only a few ways to get to the first floor, either by taking one of the two freight elevators or the stairwell. 
Alternatively, the shooter could have taken the stairwell down to the fourth floor and then cut across the building and then taken the passenger elevator to the front and exit right out the front door or possibly out of one of the loading docks. The final alternative exit strategy would have been a very public display. It would have been on the fire escape that was attached to the outside of the building. That would have most assuredly been avoided by anyone taking a shot, as it would have been a dead giveaway to what they were doing. In the end, it seems quite odd that the electricity was off. Again, Conspiracy theorists believe this somehow may have been part of a broader escape strategy, but it's hard to see how this would have enhanced the shooter's ability to get out of the building. As much as I've studied this, it's hard for me to understand how people think this is an important element of some sort of conspiracy. But I will say it is extremely odd, I think, that this happened just at that moment, just as the shots were fired. There are some in the conspiracy theorists community who think that Bill Shelley and Billy Lovelady were somehow involved with Oswald. They then very quickly leap to the conclusion that their position right there on the back stairs put them close to the electrical panel, the panel where the electrical breakers were for the elevators. Some people believe that they were back there deliberately shutting off the power to disable the elevators at that moment. What makes this more spooky without trying to unpack the logical idea of shutting the elevators off in the first place is that Bill Shelley purportedly had a background that, if you go back a ways, connected him with U.S. intelligence agencies. Now, in reality, he had been there a long time as an employee of the school book depository. So it wasn't as if he just landed there in anticipation of a JFK plot. This is but one more fact about all of this that is almost stranger than fiction. Well, anyway, just at that moment that you think this entire round trip around the building by Victoria Adams couldn't get much crazier, well, guess what? It does. Remember, fact in this whole assassination story is more fascinating than fiction. As Victoria Adams stood there, right next to Avery Davis, she could see that a police officer was taking away a young black man on his motorcycle. That was likely Amos Ewens, who a few minutes before had seen the shooter in the window and had approached the police to tell them that. And the police officer then decided it was the right thing to do to bring him over to the police headquarters and finish the questioning there and take his statement, as they did with many witnesses that day. That was actually caught on movie film. But that wasn't the only thing that caught Victoria Adams' eye that she noted to the Warren Commission. While she was talking to Avery, there was a man standing on the corner of Houston and Elm Street asking questions there. He was dressed in a suit and a hat, and he was questioning people as if he was a police officer. This man was asking questions, and they finally concluded that he was probably a reporter. But later, after the events unfolded and Oswald was assassinated, Victoria Adams would later see this man on television and get a good look at the man that was Oswald's killer. In her mind, that man looked very similar to the person who was carrying on like a reporter at that moment right after the shooting, right after and right in front of the Texas School Book Depository. She had already heard that Ruby had been inside the Dallas Morning News at the moment of the assassination, but she was skeptical, 
skeptical enough to go on record with her sworn testimony before the Warren Commission that she thought Ruby might have been the man she saw in front of the school book depository. She wasn't questioned about this. She volunteered this. This was long before any conspiracy theories were placing Ruby right outside the front door of the depository just minutes after the shooting. Like I said, just when you thought things couldn't get any more bizarre, facts become stranger than fiction in the story of the JFK assassination. Before we close today, we have to address the more serious issue brought to bear in this episode. You know, the Warren Commission liked things to be tidy, but sometimes, like the messiness that went along with the single bullet theory, it was just not possible in the JFK assassination case. The commission's lawyers would rather have just ignored the fact that Dorothy Garner had followed Victoria Adams to the threshold of the stairs on the fourth floor and then stayed there, stayed there and witnessed what did and did not happen on that stairway. One of those messy moments was June 2nd, 1964. Martha Jo Stroud, who at the time was an assistant U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Texas, well, on that day, she sent a clarifying letter via airmail to Mr. J. Lee Rankin, who was the general counsel for the Warren Commission, and basically headed up the day-to-day -day supervision of the overall work that the commission produced. The letter was to specifically make corrections to Victoria Adams' signed deposition. This letter from the U.S. attorney contained an important clarification that was needed, and Martha Jo Stroud put it right down, right in the body of the letter. A one-page letter with an enclosure, but the second paragraph in the cover letter says it all. The U.S. Attorney's Office had made a statement identifying Miss Dorothy Garner as Miss Adams' supervisor and clearly indicating that Miss Garner had said that morning to the U.S. Attorney that she had seen Mr. Truly and the policeman, that is Marion Baker, come up the stairs. Very clearly, here was evidence that when combined with the testimony that Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles had made, refutes the idea that Oswald had taken the stairs and raced down, landing in the lunchroom just in time to create the story that the Warren Commission desperately needed. In the end, they chose to collectively ignore three key and credible witnesses. Two of the three were never even called before the Warren Commission itself even though the commission already had evidence in hand. Even a letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office was not enough. Imagine that. A letter from their own was not enough. Much is done for noble causes, but when the truth is lost, can it any longer be noble? Thank you for listening to Episode 21 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>